if you didn't close your Bible already, keep it open to Galatians 5. We're getting closer to ending this sermon series on Galatians. So we have five this week and a little part of six next week, and we've met the end, but it's been fun. As you're finding that uh, in your Bibles, um, the, the progression of thought that we've taken over the last few weeks is, is this. A few weeks ago, we presented the point that your existence does not make you a child of God. Faith in Jesus Christ makes you a child of God. Then we talked about the fact that uh, faith in Jesus, uh, that children of God grow to be like the Father. That's the direction you're supposed to grow, that what you're supposed to look like as you do it. Last week, we talked about the fact that children of God know their hope. And this week, Paul's starting to bring it together and make it fairly practical, I would say, what the big points he's been making. And bringing them down, he talks about the works of the flesh. We heard sinful nature is the translation that was read this morning. Uh, flesh, it means the same thing. Um, or it's the fruit of the Spirit. That's kind of what we're putting against each other this morning. And last week, I challenged you to memorize Galatians 5.1. Uh, I heard reported back that it was a difficult passage to memorize, and sometimes they're like that. But let's put it up on the screen, and if you don't need to look, don't look. If you do, fine. And let's read it together as a people. So Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. I don't know about you, but as I memorized it, different things popped up in the text. Uh, that word again really stuck out. Don't let yourself go again to that yoke of slavery that's in there. But there are two actions that, that come to, to stand out in Galatians 5 that we see this morning. And at first sight, they look like they're competing actions. And Paul's been known to do this, uh, to mix metaphors and that sort of thing. But right here at the beginning of the second sentence, Paul says, stand firm. That's the first action that he gives us in Galatians 5 that I think we need to take hold of. He says, stand firm. You've been saved from the curse of sin, so don't give in to it again. Stand firm in that freedom that you now have in Jesus Christ. Don't go back. He uses the specific example of a yoke of slavery. And here you can see what a yoke looks like. We probably, many of us have seen a yoke. They've been used for thousands of years. Um, often used with animals in the ancient Near East uh, throughout the centuries in the days of Paul and before. Uh, they could also be used if you conquered a people and you enslaved them, you could cause some, some uh, psychological terror to them by yoking them, saying you're no better than an animal, and showing subjugation and authority over a person, and that often that happened in times of war. Paul says, don't let yourself be yoked like that. Now, I've given you a competing image this morning that Paul doesn't use, but I, I think will be helpful as we go forward, and that's when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Of course, the proper use of a yoke would have been to put two animals together, to pull a plow or to pull something to, to make uh, the labor that's going on much easier. And between the two animals, it would, it would allow for load sharing between the two. And there's also, and we shouldn't miss this, a level of teaching that is done through the yoke, which might not be obvious at first sight, but if you take an older animal that moves at the proper pace and you yoke it to a younger animal that has not yet learned to walk at the right pace and would wear itself out too fast in the day, 
all of a sudden you can teach the right pace because they have to work together. When Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, he's saying, yoke yourself to me so that you can walk at a Jesus pace. That, that image, I think, should stick with us this morning. Paul doesn't use it, but I'm giving it to you as a helpful uh, way forward to yoke yourself with Christ. Paul says the opposite is to yoke yourself in slavery again. Don't do that. The other thing that Paul talks about then, so we have stand firm. If we go to verse 16, Paul says, So I say, walk by the Spirit is what my translation has. Some of you have lived by the Spirit. We're going to use walk as our image because he talks about walking again later, staying in step. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So Paul says, stand firm, but then he says, now move forward. And those at first sight seem like competing images, but you're supposed to stand firm and not go back to a yoke of slavery. But then he says, well, don't just stand there, grow. If something's got to happen now. If, you've, if you're free, you've got to live into the freedom that you've been given, so grow. And I want to point out two truths that are useful to us this morning, uh, one of which we'll explore a lot more, and one of which I just want to give you now. And that is, that if we walk by the Spirit, for those who have chosen Jesus Christ and, and then are beginning to walk by the Spirit or continue to walk by the Spirit, one is there will be fruit. There will be something to show for it along the way. And we'll say more about that in a little bit. But the other thing is, if you're, if you're yoked with Christ, if you're walking in that freedom and walking by the Spirit, no burden in this life can steal that freedom. You will be weighed down. You will be burdened in this life. There will be troubles. That's going to happen for those who follow Christ, just like anybody. But that freedom in the Spirit cannot be stolen by those burdens. And that's an important truth to recognize. Stand firm. Walk by the Spirit. That's what Paul tells us. Now, even in the text, we can, we can actually discern that there are some competing actions or stiff competition against the idea of walking by the Spirit and not giving into that yoke of slavery again. Paul, in verse 13, says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be what? Free. But do not let your freedom, uh, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, that's the sinful nature, Rather, serve one another humbly in love. There are a couple deceiving things that can happen if we're claiming this freedom in Christ and claiming to walk in the Spirit that can actually set us back to that slavery. One of them, Paul has been addressing all throughout the letter as he's been talking about circumcision and the Judaizers he talks about that have come in, these people who have come in to... to put on you this weight of the law, but Jesus fulfilled the law, and they're saying, well, you need to be circumcised, you need to observe special days, you need to eat certain foods. He said, that stuff's fulfilled, circumcision or uncircumcision. What is that to me? He says, I don't care. do either one, but don't tell me that I have to be saved by those things. Jesus did that work. That invalidates the cross, he's telling us, to say that. And so one of the, the pieces of the stiff competition that we get from the freedom that we're offered in Christ to walk by the Spirit is, this, is uh, the issue of legalism, which Paul's been arguing against the whole time. So you can follow all the laws and the rules and do everything right, 
And, and a good definition of legalism I found this week from a, a writer, Todd Wilson. He says, legalism is treating that which is good as though it were essential. Treating that which is good as though it were essential. Whenever Christians turn something valuable into something ultimate, legalism is at work and freedom is forfeited. It looks free. It looks good. It may look moral. It may look right. And that's what Paul's saying. Okay, so they're arguing circumcision. It may look good. It may like, look like the law. Of course, it's only going to affect half the population, we should point out. But the legalist ends up doing everything right, everything by the book, but in the end, they've lost their true love. They're doing it to fulfill the law, not for love of the one who saved them and gave them freedom. They're walking by the law, not by the Spirit. The other side of the coin Paul starts to get into now as he pivots in chapter 5. So you could have legalism where we're doing everything right, but we've lost our true love. The other side, here's your big expensive word of the day, is antinomianism. That that could be spelled L-A-W-L-E-S-S. Lawless. So you can have legalism, and you could have then the other side of the coin that says, well, Jesus fulfilled the law. Now we can disregard it entirely and do whatever we want because love. And that's it. And that seems to be what Paul is saying. Yet at the same time, he brings up this vice list at the end. He says, well, the works of the flesh are are obvious. So there is wrong. There is right. We still have a moral standard. We still have things that we need to do. It's not lawless. And so we could be legalistic on one side and lose our true love, and the antinomian, the lawless then, may look incredibly loving and kind on the other side, but they don't actually grow to become like Christ. In either case, in either case, they've become their own God, setting the terms of the arrangement, not by Jesus Christ, but by either what I determine as the law or by being so legalistic that I've lost my true love, God. They're enslaved, though they look free. So we could ask then, if we're talking about the works of the flesh and the works of the Spirit, how do we distinguish between this freedom in Christ and the works of the flesh? We could put that in terms of our two categories of competition. How do you know if you're living for rules rather than for love of God? Or how do you know if you're living by your own rules, by what feels right, rather than walking God's way? And I'd say for all three questions, the answer is exactly the same, fruit. There's going to be fruit to show for what is the right thing that God wants. So let's talk about this image of fruit that Paul starts to bring up later, and I'll I'll use an image of a tree with it too, because they seem to go together. Um, let's, Let's have a cultural touch point for right now for for entering this conversation. Um, I'm a a fan of history. Um, Thomas Jefferson I find quite interesting. I think you could do an awful lot of interesting research on Thomas Jefferson. He's got a lot to say about virtually everything. Um, I don't always agree with him on an awful lot of things, but I'll tell you this. I'm glad that he wrote those words, all men are created equal. I'm glad that he put together a founding document that allows us to be here today doing what we're doing. And, and if you study his life a little bit, uh, I was looking around at it this week um, from the organization that, that runs his home, Monticello, from their website. 
they pointed out his, his issues with slavery throughout his life, which uh, it has, is a difficult issue to deal with with him. And this is quoting from their website. They said, throughout his entire life, Thomas Jefferson was a publicly, was a publicly a consistent opponent of slavery, calling it a moral depravity and a hideous blot. He believed that slavery represented or presented the greatest threat to the survival of the new American nation. Jefferson also thought that slavery was contrary to the laws of nature, which decreed that everyone had a right to personal liberty. And then you have to somehow reconcile that with the fact that he had 600 slaves in his lifetime and didn't free them. Now, I'm not trying to sully Jefferson right now, because I'm thankful for his incredible contribution and why we're here and some wonderful things that he's written, yet at the same time you have this contrast that's there. And if he were a tree, he would clearly have both good and bad fruit hanging from his branches. And I simply use that as an example to point out that, that there, there is something to distinguish in the fruit that's hanging from the branches of our trees. You can actually, Paul says, stand firm, yet walk by the Spirit. Then he brings up this issue of fruit, and we can recognize that there can be good fruit or a good tree that could produce some bad fruit along the way. That could happen. I believe that I've been Try, I've, I've got the natural ability of, of patience, but I believe that God has been working as a fruit of the Spirit to develop that further and further. I have three kids, and so that gets developed further and further. But occasionally, you get pushed beyond the moment and, and out of the bounds of patience. And as my wife likes to point out to the kids, she's like, whoa, you got dad upset. You must have done something really bad to push him that far. I'm a pretty patient person. And I think I'm cultivating the fruit of the Spirit in general, but sometimes some bad fruit can grow on that tree. Consequently, we don't want to be fooled because sometimes a bad tree can grow some good fruit. Let's use a real non-contentious example. How about this? Drug lords fund clinics. Terrorists fund schools. We wouldn't necessarily call those good trees but the fruit looks good sometimes. The bottom line is that with freedom in Christ that Paul's talking about, the trajectory matters, not just the actions. They do matter. Absolutely, he's telling us they matter. But it's the whole trajectory that's going to be important in judging everything and the fruit that's there on the tree. And I'm not the judge. Jesus Christ is the judge, but I'm just going to point out that as far as speaking of redemption, I don't think drug lords probably fit in that category. There's just too much bad fruit to lead me to any other conclusion. I'm not the judge, but I can tell by the fruit that there's probably not a lot there of godly character left and Christ-likeness. When Paul talks about fruit and fruit of the Spirit versus the works of the flesh, he's saying there's got to be a lot of evidence on that tree, is what he's saying. Yes, there may be uh, individual pieces that don't work, but there's got to be a lot of evidence on that tree that points to Christ-likeness and to walking by the Spirit. And it's interesting to me when he talks about the works of the flesh, you know, when he brings that up in verse 19, he says the works of the flesh are not hidden, not subtle, the works of the flesh are obvious, he says. And I'm not going to go through all the words on the list, 
but I'll take a couple selectively to look at the works of the flesh so we can contrast those with the works of the Spirit to understand what needs to be cultivated in our lives. And I, I would recommend uh, today, tomorrow, take time to go online, Blue Letter Bible or BibleGateway.com or one of those or uh, BibleStudyTools.com and, and do a word study because it's really enlightening to do a word study. I think we read the works of the flesh in, in this and I'm like, well, I'm not doing witchcraft, so I'm okay. But if you start to, to look a little deeper, you're like, oh, some of these could penetrate a little bit. I could be guilty here. So if you look, the first three are, are sexual nature, immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Paul, though, then talks about something like hatred, which would be perpetual hostility towards others. Could be towards one, could be towards many. But that's the idea. Hatred is that perpetual, always angry towards somebody else, or hostile. He, he also talks about fits of rage, which would be similar, but that's the hostility is going to come out in pockets. You know, I let it repress, 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 and then all of a sudden I'm just going to jump out and be angry at you unrighteously. And then he'll, he'll talk about discord, which would fit in the same category of all this. This is someone who's always looking for a fight. Sometimes this will more subtly, I think, affect us in people who are always looking for a crisis. Right? They don't feel like they're, they're fulfilled unless there's some kind of a crisis going on and they can even manufacture them if they need them. Paul also talks about something like jealousy, which the root word in, in Greek, which is what he's using, is zeal. So it would be zeal for something that someone else has. And then it's more insidious cousin envy he talks about, which is not desire for the thing, but it's begrudging the person for having it. So it's sort of jealousy meets hatred in a sense and if you look at the list they're all ungodly characteristics that he's highlighting for us they're things we shouldn't be wearing things we shouldn't have in us or on us things that shouldn't be hanging from the branches of our tree but sometimes there they are and sometimes they can crop up on us and surprise us I, I reflect back on about 18 years ago, I have um, some emotional uh, things that get brought up when we talk about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I remember some missionaries coming to the door 18 years ago, and, and not only did I hide when they came, but I felt hatred. I, I hadn't experienced that before, I felt hatred in my heart. The works of the flesh are obvious, and I felt this is ungodly. I want this out. I never want to feel that again. The works of the flesh are obvious. I think when we experience them, we know this should not be in this body. This should not be hanging from this tree. And if we can look at our lives and we can see that our tree is growing too much of that kind of fruit, or if we can see that we're growing what appears to be the works of the Spirit, but it's poisoned by many of those things, or one of those things, then we have a problem of trajectory that needs to be addressed in our lives. Let me give you a, an example of how this kind of thing might play out. Here we're going to pretend that you're this person. You've been promoted to manager at work. And you now manage some people that you used to be co-worker with. And one of those people, their co-workers, is happy for you that you got promoted. 
But when you, do, when you walk down the hall, they never make eye contact with you again. When you do team projects, they always procrastinate their part of it. Or when you're meeting together in a team meeting, they give you most of the information, but they withhold key portions of the information, ensuring your failure. They gossip about you to other people, that you're a terrible manager or whatever it is, maybe even spreading rumors. And when asked by you to the person, when you directly ask them, well, how are things going? Oh, everything's fine. They're very kind in, in the way that they present themselves to you. Nothing is wrong. But you can both clearly tell that not everything is fine and that that kindness is a ruse and a mask for envy, jealousy, and hatred that sits behind the scene. There's a name for that, by the way. Ask me later. We would not just say to that person, you know what? You do you. That works. No, there's a problem, isn't there? There's bad fruit growing on the tree. The fruit is poison, even though it looks kind and nice. Paul says the opposite of that is the fruit of the Spirit. The works of the flesh are obvious. Do not let those take root in you, or you're walking back again into the yoke of slavery. And I might just point out, he's made this pivot, by the way, that affects uh, everybody in the churches he's writing to, because he was talking about specifically Jewish problems now. Well, these works of the flesh are pretty much specifically Gentile problems, not very Jewish at this point. He's made a turn. But if we look at the works, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. I have forbearance here. You might have patience or long-suffering in old translations, which is really a good one for it. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And while there may be multiple methods for fruit cultivation, to avoid the works of the flesh and to cultivate this in your life, I just want to, as a takeaway this morning, encourage you in one specific direction of walking by the Spirit. And that is the simple direction of prayer. Because the question has to be asked, how do you maintain the path? How do you maintain the trajectory of, of trying to cultivate this fruit in all godliness and Christ-like character and avoid the works of the flesh? I think prayer, and by that I mean the relationship that you're continually developing with God and the, the face time that you have with God, really, is what needs to happen. So let's take an example of, of why this matters. Imagine to yourself, because we have at least two of them at our house, an elementary school kid goes to school, they do something at school that they feel really bad about. But they can still go on through their day, even though they got the weight of conscience on them, but it weighs on them a little bit more all throughout the day, and they can still do recess, they can still do all the things that they do, and do the, the math and the science and all the stuff, and then they finally come home, and that's when the weight is too heavy, when they're sitting face-to-face -face with mom or dad, right? And then they confess. Mom, I did this thing. What is it that does it? It's not simply the weight of conscience. It's all of a sudden they were accountable to someone. They couldn't hold it in anymore. Same thing happens to us as adults when we do things sometimes. But that FaceTime matters. It's hard to continue, that kid continuing to do that if they realize now, oh wait, when I go home, I gotta tell mom. 
because it's going to weigh on me too heavy. And the same thing's going to happen to us when it comes to our relationship with God if we're actually in a relationship where we're going before God regularly and we're trying to be confronted by the presence of the living God, we are going to want to do fewer of the works of the Spirit because they're going to weigh our works of the flesh. Try that. Works of the flesh because they're going to weigh on us so heavily. The fruit of the Spirit is, is going to be the natural outcome of going before the living God, maintaining a robust and routine relationship of talking with God as part of walking with the Spirit. So Paul specifically tells us in, in 5.24, after all this, he says, you know, against such things there's no law. In verse 24 he says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. They've killed it. They haven't just hidden it. They haven't just put it away. They've killed it. That's what Jesus has done. The yoke is broken. They're walking a different direction. It's been killed off. And so what I'm suggesting to you, if I, if I give you some real concrete things to do, last week it was brought up that I'm going to do a six-week sabbatical starting a week from tomorrow. And so I introduced you to one of the challenges uh, that was there, challenge one, which was memorize scripture. I'm going to be doing that while I'm gone. Uh, you can, I'm challenging you to do the same. And it says on this little card, you'll, you'll all get one next week, but there are some out there if you want some now. It says, can you go toe-to-toe with Pastor Evan? Remember I said, if you're not competitive, just take a pen and cross that out. And if you are competitive, you're going down. So, <laughs> sabbatical challenge number two on the back talks about literally walking and praying. Because I find it a useful tool and a useful way to do this. So I'm actually, when we say walk by the Spirit today, I'm actually saying, try it. Literally. Walk. If you're able to walk and pray at the same time, I personally have found it incredibly refreshing. Don't put on headphones, don't do anything, just take a walk around the block. Recite some scripture. Pray for people you know. Or even just say, you know what, Lord? I feel like the works of the flesh are obvious in me. Help me know how. That's a scary prayer, but that puts you right before the face of God to grow. Walk. Pray. If you can't do that, make a list. Pray from home. I know walking might not be something that all of you can do. Whatever the method, get some face time with God, is what I'm saying. And on your connection card during that sabbatical time, you can report, you know, I prayed this way or I walked this many miles or something like that. We can kind of have a little competition for those who are doing the walk. But I would add to this, if we're talking about not being yoked to slavery, and I gave you the image of being yoked with Christ, can I just tell you, actually you could try and be yoked to another believer as well as you pray. So you might think to yourself, okay, I already have a pretty good, robust prayer life, or you might think to yourself, I'm really terrible at praying. I don't do it very well. I'm not, I, I'm, I don't do it on any with any regularity, and I don't even know how to do it. Yoke yourself to someone else who does. Walk with someone else who does. Call them at night before you go to bed or in the morning right away and, and set an appointment to pray regularly with someone else, to be yoked to walk in freedom together with another believer. Create accountability and action and even variety in your prayer and learn to speak and pray better with someone else. The last thing I would say is, is in either of these categories, work at marking your day with prayer for that face time with God. 
I'm, I'm working on being more consistent in some of these, but I've, I've found myself doing it more often that when I wash the dishes, which I enjoy doing, and we have a lot of them, when I wash the dishes, I try and pray when I do that. When I do a manual activity, I try and pray as I do it. Because it's something that's got to be done every day, I'm going to do it. When I uh, am in a meeting with someone, whether it's a church meeting or some other kind of meeting, I've tried to make it more of a habit to pray for whoever's talking. And, and interestingly, I can multitask and do that and listen at the same time I've discovered, and you probably can too. So if I'm in a meeting with you, I might be praying for you when you're talking. But I'm listening. But I'm praying for you. When I walk through this room during the week, which I do a lot, I'd like to say I'm more consistent, but I'm getting better at praying as I walk through this room. I, I have markers that I put in my day to pray, and we can all do that. So whether you walk with someone else, whether you write down a list, whether you yoke yourself with another believer to walk at the same pace to pray, in some way, shape, or form, try and get that face time with God more from today on than you are. Because if the, work of the works of the flesh are obvious and you're standing before the living God, they're going to become more obvious. And if the fruit of the Spirit means you need to walk by the Spirit in order to cultivate that, then for goodness sakes, walk closer to God so you cultivate that. So that becomes who you are and you take on that godly character. The closer you walk with God, the better chance of fruit, produc fruit production you have. Let's pray before we go to the table. Lord, we'll come to you and confess momentarily. But as we begin right now, turn your face towards us so that we can both be convicted of where we need to turn from the works of the flesh and that the fruit of the Spirit would be cultivated within us. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.